Daniel chapter 6 this morning. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. I want to talk to you today about fearlessness, fangs, and fools. Daniel chapter 6, verse number 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree, assign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him, and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. 
Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this wonderful story. I pray today that you would fill me with your spirit to preach it well, and I pray you would fill us all with your spirit to hear it well. Uh, speak to us, Father. Let no one notice me or hear me, but I pray we'd all hear you and hear the Holy Spirit applying this to our hearts and our lives. Uh, may we learn from Daniel today, and where we need to make changes, may we do it. And Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we learned last time about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they were cast into a furnace of fire and were wonderfully delivered from that. And now today, we're fast-forwarding 40 years or so from that event. And uh, this time, we're going to see a similar thing taking place uh, involving Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king at this point. Uh, Babylon is no longer the empire that ruled the world. It is now has now become part of the Medo-Persian Empire, of which Darius is the king. The org chart in Darius's kingdom is, is described here very, very plainly. Uh, there were 120 satraps who had or, had uh, authority over various parts of the kingdom. The word satrap is from an old Persian word that means protector of the kingdom. It basically referred to an administrator, an underling, uh, who had authority over a certain amount. So there was 120 of those, and they themselves were overseen by three governors, uh, of which Daniel was one. And so the org chart would have looked like Darius at the top, and then three governors, and then 120 satraps under them. Daniel was an important and powerful man in the kingdom. He had distinguished himself during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and if you go back and look at the previous chapters, you see that. And now, during the reign of Darius as well, so much so that I don't know if you noticed it or not, it's fascinating, but in verse number 3, the king had planned to turn the responsibility for the entire kingdom over to Daniel. Daniel was an old man now, by the way. Uh, one source that I looked at said he, uh, he had been uh, in, in such roles for at least 40 years, and he was probably over 80 years old by this point in his life. So what happened here? Well, several things happened. First of all, if we look at verse number 3 and, and some of the other verses that follow, we, we see first right off the bat that Daniel did right. He did right. I mean, I, some very bad things happened to Daniel in this chapter. There's no doubt about it. He lived and served amongst a group of very hostile peers who were ridiculously jealous of his success and authority, their jealousy, just like we saw last week in the in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it reared its ugly head in this chapter, and it caused him some trouble. 
But it's important for us to see, and I think it's vital for us to see, right at the start, that the bad things that happened to Daniel here did not happen because he did anything wrong. They did not happen because of some sin on his part or some stupid choice or some mistake on his part. Oftentimes, when when we experience bad things or we see somebody else who's experiencing some bad thing in their life, we assume it's due to bad behavior or we assume it's something that they have done to bring this upon themselves. And sometimes it is. There's no doubt about it. The Bible does warn, be sure your sin will find you out. Can't sin and get away with it. There's no doubt about it. And foolish choices and sinful choices have consequences. But that's not the case with Daniel here. Daniel had not done anything like that. He had done nothing sinful. He had done nothing stupid. He had made no mistake that led to his troubles. Actually, just the opposite. In Daniel's case, he was in trouble here precisely because he was trying to do right. His righteousness and his excellence in serving his God and serving his king and serving his people was what made him a target. Job had experienced something similar to that. I, I, I encourage you to go over there and read that sometime. Job, he had lived such an upright life before God that even Satan was forced to take notice. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered, considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? That's amazing. God actually bragged on Job to Satan because he was such a godly person. And it was that very godliness on Job's part that made him a target. Nothing he did wrong. Joseph experienced something similar, did he not? He was sold into slavery in Egypt by his own jealous brothers. He did his very best to serve his new masters and his God well. But when his master's wife sinfully attempted to seduce him and he said no, he did the right thing, he refused, he knew such would be sin, she sent him to prison. He went to prison not because he did something wrong, but because he did something right. And, of course, Jesus Christ is the greatest example of this, isn't he? He died not for his own sin, for he had none. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We could probably think of other examples, too. But the first thing I think we need to understand, if we're going to understand what happened here in this chapter, is that Daniel's trials here were a direct result of his trying to live a life of integrity and righteousness before God. So Daniel did right. The second thing I see that happened here is Daniel was set up. Of course, that's in verses 5 through 8. These men who were so terribly jealous of Daniel and sought his removal from authority, they just they tried to get him in, th- tried to get him in trouble. They tried to set him up. And interestingly, they started by looking into his behavior as a government figure. There must have been quite a record there if he'd been doing this for over 40 years. Perhaps he had violated some law or committed some trespass against the king that they might use against him. They dug into his past. They launched an investigation. Well, this stuff just sounds so familiar, doesn't it? just amazes me. And they found nothing. Verse number four. And these men were forced to conclude, and I love this, they were forced to conclude that the only way Daniel would violate the law, if it was a law that violated God's law. We see that in verse number 5. And when I read that, I, I have to think, Daniel is such a wonderful example to us, an illustration to us of how we Christians ought to interact with civil authority. We talk about it from time to time. We might have even mentioned it just recently, maybe even last week. 
And Paul wrote in Romans 13 that we're to obey the civil authorities. He said, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God, Romans 13.1. Peter wrote the same thing. He said, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Both of those men said we ought to obey the civil authorities, but then both of those men also disobeyed civil authorities when such disobedience or such obedience would have violated God's law. Acts 4.19, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Peter and the other apostles answered and said we ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. So Daniel here has shown us that same understanding of this tension that exists between obeying God's law and obeying man's law. His enemies knew he was squeaky clean with respect to man's law. The only way they could possibly get him to violate the law would be to make one that forced him into a corner, a law that would require him to violate God's law. And I think this is fascinating because, I mean, think about this. The only way... The only way, the, the, the fact that they understood this about Daniel makes me conclude that he must have already demonstrated this in his life. There must have been other times when laws had been written or requirements had been laid where he had said, I can't do that, I must serve God. They must have known this was the case about him because they seemed awfully sure that he would disobey Darius under this circumstance. Well, these snakes came up with a plan. They approached the king with their proposal. They told him in verse number 7 that all the governors of the kingdom had worked together and pieced together that plan. Is that a true statement? No, it's not a true statement. They obviously hadn't included Daniel, the number one governor in the kingdom. Imagine that politicians would lie. Who would have ever expected a thing like that? But they did. They made it against the law to pray. Now, this is a truly amazing thought. They made it against the law to pray. I was astonished by that as I was studying this until, I don't know, somewhere along the line, the thought occurred to my mind, well, in a lot of places, it's against the law to pray in our country. It's already been done here. Why would they make it against the law to pray? Because they knew Daniel to be a man of prayer, a man who prayed often, a man who prayed faithfully, a man who would not let anything get away in the way of his praying, even if it was outlawed. And I'm convicted by that thought. We all ought to be convicted by that thought. These men looked at Daniel, and they saw that his prayer life was something so much a part of him that if they outlawed it, he would have to break the law and keep praying. Would anybody think that about my prayer life? Would anybody think that about your prayer life? Most Christians won't pray in public. At all, they cite some fear of public speaking, which is a red herring, of course, because they're perfectly content to talk about sports in public or politics in public or quote something from Facebook in public or any other thing. They'll give their opinions about anything else, but they won't pray. Prayer meetings are often the most poorly attended service in a church, if they're even held at all. You know, many churches don't even have prayer meetings anymore. You know why they don't? There's only one reason why they don't, because people don't come. Why don't people come? Because of this unwillingness to pray. It's a ridiculous indictment 
of Christians in our age, especially when we hold it up against Daniel here. Daniel, who prayed so regularly and so often that everybody knew he would pray even if it meant his death. Astounding. Well, Darius was apparently not a very bright king because he went along with their plan and signed the decree, which in their system of government could not be changed. It made it irrevocable. It could not be changed even by him. So once Darius put pen to paper in verse number 9, it was now illegal for Daniel to pray to his God. And his enemies watched to see what he would do. And in verse number 10, we see what he did. He just kept right on doing right. He just kept right on doing right. One man said, you can find the world's shortest sermon on a thousand traffic signs. Keep right. I like that. Curtis Hudson wrote, right is right, even if everyone is against it, and wrong is wrong, even if everyone is for it. Daniel is an example of that. And, of course, it was Bob Jones Sr. who famously said, do right, do right, do right, till the stars fall, do right. That was Daniel. He did just that. He, like everybody else, now knew it was illegal to pray. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed. What a verse is verse number 10. It's the key to understanding what, Dan, what made Daniel tickets. It's the key to understanding, I think, this whole chapter. I think it's the key verse in the chapter. Daniel went right on praying, even when he knew praying was going to get him in trouble. I'm pretty sure Daniel knew what a lion was. I'm pretty sure that Daniel had no doubt seen people suffer this particular form of execution. I mean, he was uh, a leader in that, in that uh, government, but he was unmoved, and he kept right on praying. Look at what verse number 10 says. It tells us so many things here. It says he went home, and he prayed in his home. I read that, and I'm forced to ask, and maybe I'm going off on a rabbit trail here. I don't know, but I'm forced to ask, do I pray in my home? Do you pray in your home? Do the people who live there with you know that you pray? Is your home a place of prayer? Do you pray before meals? Do your kids see you pray? Do they hear you pray? He, he went home. He prayed in his home. He prayed in his upper room. I don't know exactly what that is, but I think it must have been a customary place where he prayed. It was his prayer place. It was his prayer closet, if we could use uh, a common phrase. And again, I wonder, do you have a place where you pray? There was recently a Christian movie that came out that was based on this, this whole concept. It revolved around this. The hero of the movie had a room that she called her war room. And she would get in there and spend time alone with God in prayer and do battle in prayer in the war room. Do you have a place like that? Maybe it's just a chair. Your favorite chair where you sit and talk and spend time alone with God. Maybe it is a room. Some place set aside that you go and Everybody knows when you're in that room, that's a prayer place. Maybe it's a favorite tree in your backyard somewhere that you go out and sit under and pray. Susanna Wesley had 19 children, uh, and she still managed to find time to pray. Many of you might not know who Susanna Wesley was. Susanna Wesley was the mother of uh, John and Charles Wesley, who uh, influenced millions with the gospel, They're the founders of Methodism, writers of some of the hymns that we sing even today. Susanna Wesley had a little trick when uh, the nonsense of her 19 children got to her and she needed to get alone with God. She would take her apron and flip it up over her head. And her children knew mom was in her prayer place. 
don't mess with mama right now. That apron over her head was like a giant do not disturb sign because she was going to prayer. Daniel prayed in his upper room. He prayed with the windows open. Now, I think he did this for at least two reasons. I think first, he did not care that others would see it. And actually, I think I think he wanted them to see. Even knowing that their seeing was dangerous, he, uh, he not only avoided hiding it, but he wanted to be a testimony to others. So I think he wanted to be seen. But I think also he prayed before an open window that was toward Jerusalem as a very specific reminder to him and to others where his true allegiance lie. He was a child of the one true God, and he wanted everybody to know it. So he prayed with the windows open. He prayed on his knees, perhaps there illustrating that he would not bow to Darius's decree because he bowed before a higher king. He prayed three times during the day. Now, that's interesting to me, three times. He was one of the three highest officials in the kingdom. I have to imagine he was a busy man, yet with all the responsibilities he had as a governor. He still had time for prayer. He still made time for God. That, that convicts me. It ought to convict us all. I cannot count the number of times that I've spoken to people uh, about serving God, and the phrase comes back, I'm too busy. Yet he was a busy man, a busy, busy, busy man who knew the importance of making time for God. Martin Luther once said, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. He said, I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. Today, I think most Christians think posting a praying hands emoji on Facebook is enough, and they've done their duty. Daniel carved out time in his busy day. Time is the key word, it's the key concept there. It convicts me, it ought to convict us all. I don't spend enough actual time in prayer. Three times. He gave thanks, amazingly, knowing he was committing a crime that would cost him his position. He gave thanks, knowing that the punishment for his crime was death by being eaten alive. He gave thanks, knowing that his accusers were no doubt right that very moment, training binoculars on his window watching him pray. He gave thanks. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And to the Philippians he wrote, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Jesus, on the very night he was betrayed, gave thanks. And so he gave thanks. And he did what he had done as a custom since he was young. For 80 years or so, he had done this. Realize, Daniel was not arrogantly just violating the king's command. He wasn't thumbing his nose at the king. He was just doing what he had always done in serving God. How many of us, when we come to the ripe old age of 80, will be able to look back on a lifetime of consistent and habitual prayer? I don't know about you, but I can't wait to meet Daniel someday. I am so convicted by him. He is, he is such a tremendous hero of the faith. And I'm so convicted by what this one verse, Daniel chapter 6, verse number 10, describes to me of his character and his strength. Well, so he continued on doing right. Verses 11 through 17, Daniel paid the price for doing right. His enemies caught him, as 
They knew they would. They accused him to the king, who was appalled at his own stupidity for being tricked into destroying Daniel. But the law was clear. He was trapped, just as Daniel was trapped, and there was no getting out of it. And so he ordered it done. Daniel was tossed into the den of lions. Stone was rolled over the entrance, and it was sealed so he could not escape. Verses 18 through 23, Daniel's God delivered him. I'm, uh, I'm amused by the fact that the king didn't sleep that night. But I'm also guessing Daniel slept just fine with a lion as his pillow. Wouldn't you like to have a lion as your pillow? I love the question the king asked the next morning when he came. He said, has your God been able? I love the fact that the Bible says he asked it with a lamenting voice. Daniel, has your God been able? It's a question many an unbeliever asks, and it's the question any praying Christian can answer. Can God? Absolutely. Jeremiah could answer it. He said, ah, Lord God, behold, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is... Nothing too hard for you. Can God? Absolutely. And Daniel's answer was wonderful. He said, my God sent his angel. Verse 22. Now, some people would say that was another theophany. We've talked about theophanies a lot in this series. A theophany being a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And so some people would say Jesus himself was there. But this person is not referred to as the angel of the Lord, just an angel. The Lord sent his angel. And so it probably was just a regular old angel, if there is such a thing. The angel of the Lord does encamp all around those who fear him, the psalmist said, and delivers them. Angels are a fascinating topic. One of these days I ought to teach on that. We ought to do a study on it. I love the illustration in the story of Elisha, which I've shared to you so many times because it so encourages me. Elisha, the prophet who found himself surrounded by the enemies of God. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. Elisha, you may not see them, but there they are. Though they that are with us are more than they that are with them. I recall reading the testimony one time of a woman. She was talking about watching Anthony Berger die. Anthony Berger was a piano player with the Gaither Vocal Band for some years. And then they were having a cruise, a Christian cruise, and they were doing a concert, and Anthony Berger was at the piano when he just dropped dead, playing the piano in the middle of this concert. And this woman wrote in her testimony that this is what she claimed. She claimed that uh, at the moment that happened, she just happened to look up at Anthony playing the piano. She was watching him. And suddenly she said there was an angel standing right there. And she said he put his hand on Anthony, and then Anthony slumped over and died. Now, I'm not a charismatic, and I don't usually believe in miraculous manifestations like that. I don't usually believe in those kind of miraculous and think things visions and such. But you know what? Whether that happened or not, it sure does fit Scripture. Because my Bible tells me Jesus said Lazarus was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom when he died. Angels. God sent an angel and delivered Daniel. In verse 23, Daniel was taken up out of the den 
And no injury or whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. Verse 24 is another one of those verses I find absolutely hilarious in the Bible. Daniel saw his enemies defeated. Am I the only one who finds that verse amusing? I think it's pretty funny. I once had a great dame named Pharaoh. I've told you about Pharaoh a few times. Pharaoh had some things that you could get him to do all the time. Uh, Pharaoh liked cookies, for example. I could get Pharaoh to drool a puddle on the floor the size of this pulpit by simply holding out a cookie. Can you imagine those lions? Think about them lions. Hungry, there's Daniel, and they can't touch him. I can just imagine the drool just pouring. And then the next morning, here comes breakfast dropping down through. And I love what the Bible says. They tore them to pieces before they ever hit the ground. Daniel saw his enemies defeated. Verses 25 through 27, Daniel's God got the glory. Darius had to admit that God is God. Only God could have done what he did. And finally, verse 28, Daniel lived long and prospered. Apologies, I couldn't resist the Star Trek quote there. He lived long and prospered. The Bible actually says it. See, there's evidence of Star Trek. So that's what happened. What does it mean? What applications can we make? Let me just suggest a couple. Just a couple. The first is this. Those who believe are always under God's care. Always. Daniel could do right even when it was dangerous to do so because he knew God would never let him down. And you could do the same. You need never worry whether God will be there for you. He will. You need never fear the loud voices of God's enemies because God is bigger than them. You can trust God. He will never fail you. Others may fail you, but God will not. Circumstances may frighten you, but God will still be there. You are surrounded and protected by the very angels of God. And those who believe God are always under his care. Now, now we need to be clear about something here. I don't want you to be confused by this. God doesn't always deliver from the lions, not the way we would expect. I visited Rome once, and when I visited Rome, I walked through the catacombs. And history tells us that many Christians were martyred in those catacombs by the Romans, setting the lions loose down there amongst them. I went and visited the Roman Colosseum and stood there where the very same thing happened, and Christians were martyred by the lions. Hebrews chapter 11 mentioned the faith of some who stopped the mouth of lions, Hebrews 11.33. But just a couple of verses later, it mentions that others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still other had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. And so the fact is, and the point we need to see this morning is this, regardless of whether God delivers you from trials or through trials, he nonetheless always delivers you. The Christian wins, no matter what. But I write that one down. The Christian wins, no matter what. I recall reading an event that took place in the life of Dr. John R. Rice. Dr. Rice is now with the Lord. According to this story, Dr. Rice had apparently made someone in his congregation mad. Amazingly, preachers seem to do that from time to time. But he had made somebody so mad that the guy came after him with a pistol, threatening to kill him. And the witnesses who were there at the time said Dr. Rice just stood there very calmly looking at the man over his glasses. And he said, you can't threaten me with heaven. 
That's pretty good. We can't lose. We can't lose. If the Lord delivers us from the lions, we win. If the Lord chooses to take us home by way of the lions, we win. We are always and ever under God's care. Well, that's one application I would make. second one is this. Those who don't believe will all face God's wrath. God will always judge those who fights against him. Think back on our study at Esther. It wasn't that long ago. Do you remember the story of Haman? God always judges those who fight against him. This is my father's world. Let me dare forget that though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. No amount of trickery, no amount of power here on the earth, no amount of political intrigue will keep those who refuse Christ from judgment. There is an end. There is a judgment. For the believer like Daniel, there is eternal reward. For the unbeliever, no matter who they are, there is eternal separation from God and everything else in hell. Oh, listen to me this morning. If you die without Christ, you're not going to be cast into a den of lions. You're going to be cast into the pits of hell. Revelation chapter 28, the unbelieving shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The unbelieving shall have their part. So what part of this story resonates with you? Everyone in this room is in one of the two categories described here. You're either a believer like Daniel and therefore safe forever in Christ. Or you're an unbeliever like his enemies and facing horrible judgment at any moment. There's only one thing differentiated between the two and it's plainly stated here. It's seen in verse number 23. We learned there that Daniel was delivered and Daniel was safe. Why? Because he believed in God. So there's only one question this morning. Do you believe? The Bible says if you will but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Do you believe? Do you believe? Father God, we're so thankful for all of these Old Testament stories that we've been looking at. We're so thankful, Lord, for the wonderful lessons that we can learn from them, the convicting examples we see in some of them. Father, I look at Daniel and I just want to weep at my own lack of prayer and lack of dedication to you. My heart is so black, Father, and I confess it to you. And I know I'm not the only one in the room who would look at Daniel as an example and be distressed at the contrast. Help us, Father, those of us here who today who are Christians, to look at him and, and say, I, I need to do better. I need to be more dedicated to my God. I need to be more willing to serve him. And certainly on a very specific way, I, I need to pray more. I need to be a man of prayer, a woman of prayer. I need to be such a person of prayer that everyone knows I'm a person of prayer. And that nothing will stop that praying. Help us, Lord, who are here today if we need to make that kind of a decision. Maybe some need to come and pray here at this altar and uh, publicly let it be known. And, Lord, I pray if there are those here today in, in this size of a crowd, I'm sure there must be some who've never trusted Christ. I know it's so common. I hear it so often. I've always been a Christian. 
Uh, I, I've gone to church all my life, these kinds of things. And yet, Lord, we know that none of those things are the right answer. Uh, we have to believe. And so, Lord, I pray if there's even one here today who has never, somewhere along the line, come to the place where they thought, I'm lost. I need to be saved. I believe what the Bible says about Jesus, and I believe that he died on a cross for me. Lord, if there's even one, I pray this day they would, uh, they would kneel. They would kneel here at this altar, right where they stand, wherever it might be. But, Lord, they would turn their life to you and say, I believe, before it's too late, before they face the judgment that is to come. Father, whatever the needs might be, there may be some here today with other things on their heart or mind that they need to come pray for. Uh, there may be uh, decisions that need to be made. I pray as we conclude our service with a invitation song that you'll just speak and work and help us all, Father, to learn from this story and to respond to this story as you would have us to. In Jesus' name, amen.